We're in John 15 today, and you can find that printed in your worship guides, or you can turn there with me in your Bibles. And as you do so, will you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Most of you have probably seen at this point uh, the famous movie Schindler's List, which tells the story of Oscar Schindler, who as a businessman during the Holocaust, used his money and resources to set up a safe haven for Jews who had been moved into concentration camps. And there's a, there's a beautiful part of the movie in which uh, one of the actors in the movie recognizes the list, and he says, the list is life. To be on the list, to be sheltered by Schindler, was to experience life. Now, can you imagine how silly it would have been if someone had been placed on the list and had moved into Schindler's factory, and I said, well, my name is on the list. I'm going to go see how things are going at Auschwitz. Or I'm going to go for a stroll across the front lines. And the safety that Oscar offered, Oscar Schindler offered, was not simply because one's name was on a list, but that one came into the, the safe relationship of being in proximity of Oscar Schindler, of relying upon him, of abiding by the situation that was put in place to offer offer safety. One was safe as long as one abided near to and with Oscar Schindler. That perhaps is a helpful metaphor to begin to try to understand what is on hand in John chapter 15, that over and over again, Jesus will use this language of abiding in. We're called to abide in Christ. That is the only way that we produce fruit. It's the only way that we glorify God. It's the only way that we find life. And so we need to come to terms with understand what does it mean to abide in? What prevents us from abiding in? And what are the benefits of abiding in? 
So first we have to understand really what it means as Jesus uses this metaphor of vine and branches. What does it mean to be a branch? That's the role that we are called to, the role that we are assigned. What does that mean for us? Well, the the imagery that Jesus is using is by no means new. It's been around a long time in the world of God's people. Often in the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as the vine. And as we read in the Old Testament reading this morning, sometimes they, it was a, it was an image to say, listen, we're feeling neglected and the animals are eating us and we don't have enough water. God, you need to pay attention. But if you turn to other places like Isaiah and Jeremiah, then Israel is the vine, but they come under scrutiny. Israel is, is, uh, comes under the pronouncement of the prophets for not producing fruit, for not producing fruit that's worthwhile and they need to be uprooted and replaced. And so understand that even at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is fitting himself into this long, uh, this long used image, this long used metaphor and taking the place of Israel. Israel has not succeeded in its calling. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. I have succeeded where Israel has failed, which displaces God's people from being the actual vine and now being branches connected to the true vine, which is Jesus himself. It means that no longer being the vine, we are the branches. The passage says some pretty strong things about being a branch. Branches that fail to produce fruit are taken away. They're removed. This suggests to us that you know, what we might call today a nominal faith is not an option. A faith in which we, we may say, of course I believe in Jesus, and of course I believe that my name is belongs to him and that I am saved, but if that was all that is there and there, there is not fruit, then we have to wrestle with verses like verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Taking your faith and the fruit that it produces lightly is quite literally deadly. On the other hand, branches that are producing fruit are not taken and thrown out. They're not burned, but they're pruned. It's a pretty interesting image that God gives us for the way He loves us and tends us. And as Zach already uh, indicated, we're, we're not a very agricultural people. I'm certainly not a very agricultural person. Uh, we really need Rob Randall to come up and our resident arborist to come up and give us a lesson. But I have read that this is the case that vines, as they grow, produce too many branches. And the branches have a tendency to grow in on one another and over each other. And as these the branches do this, uh, the fruit that's produced is not as good as fruit that is produced on a vine that is actually pruned, where someone has gone through and removed excess branches has promoted the health of the primary branches, and as a result, you get much better fruit. Now, pruning in and of itself is not necessarily a pleasant task or a pleasant experience. Right? The, the vine dresser takes his knife or he takes his shears and approaches the vine and removes pieces of, of the branch that it might grow, that it might grow better than it's growing then. And, which is something that we're afraid of. 
The notion, the very notion of pain that might be inflicted upon us, even if we say that pain has benefit, is not something that we gravitate towards. We're a culture where people who are very adverse to pain, even if there's some promise of benefit. As one theologian pointed out, there's no moment at which the vine dresser is more intimate with the branch than when he approaches the branch with the pruning knife or the pruning shears in hand. Is when the vine dresser must be most careful and must be most loving and, of course, is committed to the goal of seeing the branch thrive as part of the vine. I uh, have a very minor, not very serious, upcoming shoulder surgery because I tore part of my shoulder. So I've been a little bit curious. A number of you have had shoulder surgeries. And so I've been asking around, and uh, I've heard the same story from everyone I've talked to. You ask about the surgery, and they say, oh, no big deal. Didn't even notice it. You say, oh, well, okay, that's good news. And you ask about physical therapy, and you say, well, the exercises are not a big deal. They're fine. And then everybody gets a look on their face, and they say, but when the physical therapist stretches you out, Lord have mercy. The pain that is involved in them stretching that out is, is significant. And there's part of me, oh, I don't, I don't like hearing that. I'm not really looking forward to that part. But the stretching has to happen because if the stretching doesn't happen, then the muscles heal, uh, reform to bone or wherever they've been torn, and heal and too tightly. And you won't actually have full mobility. It won't be that useful. It's kind of a wasted procedure without having it stretched out in the process of it healing. The pain is actually something that is good and necessary for health to be achieved, even though that pain isn't something that I look forward to. And we all, as God approaches us and seeks to to see us grow up in Christ, to be healthy branches that bear fruit as part of the vine, pain will be part of that. God approaches you with a heart of love to prune you, to strip back that which might interfere with your growth and the production of healthy fruit. Is that unpleasant? Yes. Is it necessary? Absolutely. And it's not something that we should run for, from or be so adverse to, but it's something that we should look forward to. In one sense, uh, I was thinking, it struck me that pruning is a reward. You know, the, the branches that don't produce fruit are cast out, but the branches right, that are already producing fruit are the ones that are pruned. As you begin to engage faithfulness and the production of fruit, God then comes in and continues to see that your fruit becomes uh, richer and fuller, that you might participate in His kingdom. Okay, we have a little bit of understanding now, hopefully, about what it means to be a branch in the vine. What's in store for us? But how do we actually work at being that good branch, at producing fruit, at submitting to being pruned? What does it mean then, as we're called to abide in the vine over and over again, what what does that mean? If I ask you, what does it mean that you abide in Christ, that you abide in the vine? Unpack that for me. What would you say? Jesus helps us to understand what he's after. If you look at verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Now that's a little bit funny because if you've been reading the passage, 
you kind of expect if Jesus to say, if you abide in me and I in you. But he replaces himself now with my words, abide in you. But if the commands and the teaching that I have given abiding in you, that is the same as I am abiding in you. He uses them interchangeably here. And in verse 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so between verse 7 and verse 10, we now have a picture that abiding in Christ is walking faithfully in the words of Jesus. It is, as we saw last week at the latter portion of John 14, abiding is obedience. In the section of John, John basically feels very fluid to use three ideas very, very interchangeably. It's abiding in Christ, love, loving Christ, and obeying His commands. Right? That love is expressed in obedience, and obedience is abiding. And abiding is obedience, and obedience is an expression of love. And you can go forwards and backwards, and John feels very comfortable to do just that. Abiding. Being in the vine is obedience, which is uh, an expression of love. How are you at abiding? How do you do at obeying and keeping the commandments? I've been following uh, with some degree of fascination, and not I would hope that's not heard as a sense of perverse fascination, um, but I'm fascinated by, by this kind of scenario, the scenario of Brian Williams which some of you may have been following. Uh, Brian Williams is the NBC Nightly News anchor. Uh, by far, in a way, the most watched news anchor in the United States. Some 9 million viewers every week. And it came out recently uh, that Williams has told a story going back to 2003 that he was shot down in, an L, in a helicopter from RPG fire and went down and, and but survived that helicopter crash. And he's told this story on numerous occasions over the years. Uh, and it's tended to get more sophisticated and elaborate as it's gone. Well, uh, finally it came out that, oh, that didn't really happen. Right? The story is made up. Uh, he was never in a helicopter that was shot down. He was in a different helicopter at one point in time. But it raises the question, how in the world do you, do you, did Brian perceive, uh, uh, persuade himself that he was in a, shot, a helicopter that was shot down? And how do you get a memory like that wrong? Like, yeah, I just think I was shot down. It seems like, yeah, I would leave a pretty lasting impression being shot down in a helicopter. So there's this, and he said, well, I just made a, made a mistake. And perhaps, perhaps he did. We know that the, if there's anything that's incredibly fallible, it's the human memory. Right? And I'm not, not looking at all to, to, to beat up on Brian Williams, but what happened as a result of this, of course, what is all, all the other news agencies going to do? They're going to pour over every story Brian Williams has told over the last 10 or 15 years, which is what they're doing. And now there's another story where he was, he was on a plane with SEAL Team 6 back in the day, and they kind of struck it up and were buddy-buddy. And, and then when uh, later on, one of the, the soldiers on SEAL Team 6, after the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, uh, happened to grab a piece of the crashed uh, helicopter that they blew up so the technology wouldn't fall into other people's hands because no one even knew that that kind of helicopter existed. And But he got one and sent it to his favorite news anchor as a memento because he has a particular place in his heart for Brian Williams. Right? Uh, even on the surface, there are all kinds of problems. A, journalists are never embedded with, with SEAL teams. 
B, maybe they shared a flight together, but the SEAL team at that date would have been different than the SEAL team that actually raided bin Laden's compound. C, really, you're running out with Osama bin Laden's dead body, and there's molten helicopter in flames, and you think, I'm going to grab a piece for my favorite news anchor. Right? You just start to think, that probably, maybe, I don't know, we'll see, it'll play out. But I don't think so. I don't think that happened. But as I'm, I'm watching, you know, Brian Williams and all of this unfold, and uh, there's actually it's a, degree, a, a sympathy. Like, I, I feel for this guy, and I realize I'm, I feel for him because I, I think to myself, oh, we do that all the time. Right, like this poor guy, it, he he overstepped and he told very big stories and he told it on a national stage and it compromises the integrity of his very job. But we tell stories like that all the time. Right. In other words, we, we stand before John 15 and Jesus is saying, abide in me. And our constant temptation, because our hearts are never, we, 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 don't, we don't stay there long enough to be satisfied and think we'll be more satisfied elsewhere we tend to gravitate to abide in different stories. And often those stories are made up. We, we fictionalize narratives around us all the time that we're going to find pleasure or contentment or satisfaction in other places. And perhaps you're even a person who tells stories to make your life more significant in some way. It satisfies you like Brian Williams. But that's, it's a, you know, what's going on for Brian Williams is a story that goes on for all of us. That we're tempted to abide in other stories rather than the story of Jesus and the words and the commands that he delivers to us. So we have to wrestle with why would we want to be that branch and why do we, why do we keep running from being that branch? There's certainly, we mentioned the pain of pruning. We understand there's pruning involved, so we might want to duck that, but we also seek to avoid uh, being the branch that we're called to be. We seek to really land and avoid being faithful to Jesus. And one of the questions that's bound up in this is, we've said uh, that Jesus identifies abiding with keeping his word. We've said that he identifies it in verse 10 with keeping my commands. Well, the question then might be raised, what is what, particularly, what particular word or particular command are we talking about? Right? What is Jesus really after? And Jesus' command, which he has... He's given, he says, a new command I've given to you previously in John, and then he reiterates it again here, is that we are to love one another. To love one another as Christ has loved us. This is the foremost command or agenda of Jesus in the Gospel of John for the people that follow him. What would it be if we loved one another in a radical way? Would that, would that be interesting to you? Would it be worth it to you? It's... There are a lot of things, I think, that speak against loving people is really hard, right? Entering their messiness and participating with it. I was struck by a story that happened a little bit ago, um, a story of a man named Rob, Rod Dreyer, who grew up in a small town in Louisiana, San Francisville, which is only about 1,700 people. And as he was growing up in the town, he couldn't wait to get out. And when he got out, he went on to college, and he never looked back and went to live in various cities, Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, never wanted to go back to this small town in Louisiana where his sister had stayed. And his sister, in 2010, was uh, was diagnosed with a vi- 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 a, I'm, vi- vi- virulent. I still didn't get it right. Virulent, thank you. 
virulent form of speech dysfunction. No, virulent form of cancer. Uh, from which it was, it was a foregone conclusion that she was going to pass away. She was going to be consumed. So, uh, Rod and his wife relocated for a season back to the town of St. Francisville. And what they found there, uh, they were surprised by. They were overwhelmed by this town, which is, of course, is significantly saturated by faith. Uh, but what happened is the entire town rallied around the family. There were cookouts to raise money for medical care. Ruthie, who is the sister who is ailing, met a woman named Stephanie when they were both getting chemotherapy. Stephanie continued to accompany Ruthie to the hospital even after her own round of treatments was finished. And on April 10th, 2010, the town um, named the day officially Ruth Lemming Day in St. Francisville. They threw a fundraising concert in which the majority of the town participated and came out. They set up a camp trailer so Ruthie could be there and receive oxygen in the midst of the concert. And Rod... Uh, Dreher wrote this, it's so beautiful to see, regarding the concert, it's almost, and the outpouring of support, it's almost painful and so unreal in its generosity that you think it must have been a movie. The town uh, supported the family throughout uh, Ruthie's time of suffering and throughout the burial, and she died shortly before Christmas one year. And Ruthie and her mother had this annual tradition of going to the cemetery and lighting candles on all of the graves in St. Francisville as just a, gener- a, a generous gesture on Christmas Eve. But having just lost Ruthie, her mother did not feel up to it in any way, and um, but was driving by Christmas Eve evening to see that the entire cemetery was lit up with candles, that the town had taken upon itself the role that they had and that they can. And she called Rod sobbing, You've got to find out who did this for us. Whoever it is, they will never know what this meant to me. They will never, ever know. It's really a beautiful picture that so consumed Roger Ayer that as uh, they went through the funeral and began to get his family in order, they started to look back to returning to where they had come from. They had put an offer on a farmhouse outside of Philadelphia. And as that offer fell through, they felt a sense of relief and decided we can't imagine going anywhere else but St. Francisville. In other words, they said, we've tasted such a degree of love for one another, of community, in this community, that why would we want to go somewhere else? Why would we want to raise our kids somewhere else? Why would we not want to be connected to this community? And suddenly all of the attractiveness of the big cities and the big opportunities and the fast-paced life seemed to diminish and grow dull. And they decided to take up residence permanently in St. Francisville. That's a picture of, of the love that we are called to. It says, love one another as I have loved you. To be a community that lays down one's life for each other. To wash one another's feet. And in this, who wouldn't want to be part of that community? And it's breathtaking beauty in the offer of life. And knowing your purpose that you bring life to those who are struggling and it is only a matter of time before you struggle and need them to bring life to you. But in that, there's utter confidence that this is what it means to be part of the vine that Jesus has has grown, has made new. As He assumes the role of Israel and becomes the new vine, we become His branches. And in that, there is great beauty and great richness. And so, 
That makes me want to be a branch. It wants me to be faithful, to abide in Christ because it produces something so beautiful. And that's not the only thing it produces that's beautiful. You, I don't know if you noticed, but as you read through this passage, the benefits of being a branch are ridiculous. Right? The benefits of, of abiding in Christ are so ridiculous, it, it, it causes one to have no trouble understanding what it means that this is the pearl of great price and that you would sell everything to attain it. Consider what's on hand for those who are branches that bear fruit. First of all, you are actually pruned by the loving hand of God that you bear more fruit. In verses 7 and 16, you're told that anything you ask for, you will receive it. It's not a carte blanche invitation, boys and girls, to ask for anything that you want, but that's another sermon. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The purpose of Jesus disclosing this is not only... Our, the love for one another that we share, as he says at the end of, of our passage, but that um, as we uh, as we engage being a branch and love one another, we experience the very joy of Christ that fills us up. To be filled with that level, that sense of deep and lasting joy from Christ. And as a branch, Jesus, the living God, calls us friend. He says, these things I've disclosed to you, all because no longer am I calling you a slave, I'm laying my life down for you because you are my friends and now you are my friends permanently. But do you, do you sense for just a, a moment how ridiculous it is that the living Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the creator God, goes out of his way to create a scenario in which he can call you friend? It's ridiculous. You're not worth being called friend. Except you are to God. Because he finds you beautiful and he loves you. And he will sacrifice himself so that you can be called friend. I want to be loved by that kind of friendship. I want to surrender myself to that kind of friendship. And so there's much, there's just a whole world of life that is offered by abiding in Christ and being the branch. We're so poor at it. We're so prone to wander. We're so prone to abide in other things. So close, I wanted to share with you a a rare and very vulnerable look at someone who who chose to abide in something else. You know, when we choose not to abide in Christ, an image that the Bible often uses to describe that idea to help God's people understand what's going on is adultery. Boys and girls, it's a big word, but we've talked about it before, and and it means that when a a husband and a wife are married, their hugs and kisses are for each other. When they go and would share their hugs and kisses with someone else, that's adultery. And uh, Wendy Plump, who was a woman who um, both engaged in adultery and was the victim of her spouse committing adultery, uh, gave a rare and I think in some ways brave glimpse of what her experience was. You know, at the beginning she said this was really exciting. Everything was new, everything was hidden, everything was sneaky, and yeah, the intimacy was pretty amazing. And then eventually it was found out, and uh, she, she would describe things like missing children's games for what she was engaged in, and how that would hit her like a train, and then she later went through her husband doing this and uh, looking back, separated from it for, for years, she looked back and had this to say. In the end, your marriage may not need to be trashed, though mine was. 
the, uh, the affairs, the adultery, metastasize in our relationship from the inside out. By the time all was said and done, there was little left to save. Our marriage had become like a leaf eaten away by caterpillars, where the petiole and midrib remain with some ghostly connective tracery in between. Not enough to hold even a drop of rain. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, and again, this is about adultery, but as a metaphor, I would say that applies to virtually anything in which you are tempted to not abide in Christ, but to abide in something else. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit in a fair and neatly? If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraq city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery. From where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel room. Whether you're in that room to have an affair to escape from the discovery of one, and despite the intimacy and the excitement, or the drama and the fix of everyone's empathetic attention, there is no view from this room that is worth having. So we're constantly tempted to not abide in the vine, and for all of us, probably there's for all of us, there's some part of us that's not abiding in the vine right now. Consider the words of Emily, who says, Yeah, I've I moved far away and engaged in something that was very different. And now, looking back from the outside, with a good bit of distance, I can tell you that none of it was worth it. That my life became something like a leaf eaten by caterpillars, like a city that had been bombed. And now, what I wouldn't give to have something that was steady and solid and rich and life-giving. That same question exists for you every time you wrestle with abiding in the vine. What do you want to be the truth down the road? That you have abided in the vine and are a branch producing fruit and know the richness of Christ's love and extend that love to others and have helped to build a community that's characterized by that love? Or over and over again, you have made the foolish decision of seeking to abide in something else and your life has been eaten as a result. As you prepare to come to the table, repent of those poor decisions and pray for the Spirit's strength to abide where you're supposed to abide. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your great mercy and love. And we ask that You would give us strength through Your Spirit to abide where we are intended to be. We thank You for Jesus, our vine, and that You have made us His branches, and we pray that we would thrive in that place. So help us uh, to give us strength and wisdom not to love things that are foolish and not to love things that will not love us back, but instead to love the One who has loved us to the extent that He has called us friend and He has died for us. We pray that You would nourish us and encourage us this morning, even as we come to be fed by that lover of our souls. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.